get ready for the world's greatest Arsenal podcast. Welcome to another podcast by Guns and Yellow Ribbons. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of Guns and Yellow Ribbons. My name is Fergus and I am your host. I'm joined by old man Trev and our two in-house historians, they seem to be at the moment. We're continuing our summer episodes of uh, Arsenal history, the way it was. Uh, this week, I have Mark and Andy joining us, and we're going to talk about the Chapman era, 1925 to 1934. Really, 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 really important uh, times uh, for our club. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, welcome, Andy. Welcome, Mark. Mark, how are you? Decorator still hasn't been in? No. But I'm fine, thank you. Do we name that decorator to make sure we don't get them to book into our houses? Uh, the decorator has been in, but I've then got to have the ceiling done and all the re- all the all the the room renovated and whatnot. And then he comes back, you see. So he's, he has actually done his job. It's me um, not getting sort of things sorted out that's the problem. Okay, okay, okay. Andy, how are you? I know it was a uh, it was a rush to the to the start starting line for you. How are you uh, this evening? You okay? Yep, I'm fine, thank you. Nice to see you all again. Good. And the tooth, uh, we uh, pu- uh, postponed this episode from last week, and we've done a summer catch up instead. Um, the tooth is is better. I've got an abscess, and I've been told I've got to have a tooth out as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. And five hundred quid out of your wallet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor the man with a t-shirt for every episode how are you doing I'm alright thanks mate I wonder who you stole that saying off of Fergus uh, I, I, don't know. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> anyway, is Mark who you might have stole that off you know none, none, at, none at all Trevor none whatsoever none, none whatsoever Mark, Mark <laughs> did ask the question before we went live Jesus do you have a do, do you have um, do you have a t-shirt for every episode um Right, today we're going to look at the uh, the Herbert Chapman era. Um, we done on the last episode, we done Plumstead, our Woolwich to, to, to Highbury, uh, 1886 to 1925. This one we're going to do 1925, 1934. If you've got any questions, pop them in the comments. If they're relevant and so on, we'll ask the guys. But give us some feedback as well on what you think as well. Um, so uh, to, to line it up, we, we finished off... Um, Touching on uh, Norris and the power struggle with Norris, uh, and um, Norris getting getting himself in a little bit of bother. Mark, you you were talking about this. Do, do you want to talk about like him sowing the seeds of his own destruction between what nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty five? So it leads us up nicely into that era. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what he did is he he, he sort of ran the club as a bit of a fiefdom. He, you know, he was in charge, even though. As we point, we always point out is that he wasn't really in charge. Hall was an equal partner with him. Um, so what he did is he did a few dodgy deals with uh, signing on players, um, paying their loans off, paying legal costs for them when you know to, to get them sorted out. Um, for instance, Clem Voicey, he did that in nineteen nineteen. Did Bert Wyatt um, and also um, Jock Rutherford. Um, they were they were there. Um, they were players who he helped out, um, and th- this was the stuff that was used in the 1927 FA inquiry um, about you know towards him. Um, they, they uncovered all these 
you know, these financial irregularities that had occurred. Um, he also he also was doing something with the reserve bus. Um, I think he, he he did something dodgy with a check, um, which was uncovered. Um, and also, I think I think he I think he was found um, to have um, to have forged Chapman's signature. That's right, isn't it, Andy? That that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, effectively, William Hall said to him, I think in 27, sort of, you know, near the end of the season, just before the FA Cup final against Cardiff, um, I'm resigning. I think you should too, because if you don't, you could drag our name through the mud. Um, but obviously, Norris, Norris, he didn't, and he did drag him through the mud. Okay. Um, Andy, uh, you know, Chapman was at Northampton, Huddersfield, uh, and he was even banned from football while a manager at Leeds City. Was was he not an angel too, maybe? No, no, he was he was whiter than white. Um he was his problems at the problems at Leeds City were to do with um the during the war it seemed that they were paying their players illegally. But Chapman wasn't there during the war. He was off doing his bit for King and Country. Um, and then he came back and he got caught up in, in all these illegal payments uh, just through uh, association with the club. So, so while he was away, whoever was running the club at the time was doing all this, this dodgy bit financing. And Chapman's come back to it, had nothing to do with it whatsoever. But um, the FA took the stance that they would just ban everybody associated with Leeds City. And in fact, Leeds City uh, disappeared as a, as a football team. Um, and were reborn as Leeds United. Uh, sorry, that's but, Dirty Leeds, not Leeds United. Yeah, that's Dirty Leeds. Yeah, sorry, that, exactly yeah, 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 Dirty yeah. Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Chapman had nothing to do with Dirty Leeds. Uh, he, he was uh, out of the game, um, and he was eventually reinstated. So he had been banned for life, as you know, as part of the Leeds City thing. But he was reinstated and joined Huddersfield as their assistant manager in the just after the war. Okay. Trevor, um, you uh, mentioned in uh, when we were chatting beforehand about um, following on from the end of the last uh, two weeks ago when we, we had our, our last uh, history podcast um, that, you know, Norris has sown the seeds of his own destruction between 19 and 25. Would that start uh, set the scene for Chapman to be able to mould the club into the way he wanted from 1927 onwards? Do you want to expand on that and ask the guys um, what you meant by by that? Just before we move on to that bit, Burgess, there's something else I looked up, and I genuinely looked this up, I think, yesterday or the day before, and and it got me thinking, because Chapman's manager of Huddersfield has made Huddersfield a very successful side. And... Huddersfield have got an inkling that he's going to move to Arsenal. And I've, I've heard I've heard say that Huddersfield offered to match whatever Arsenal were going to give Chapman. Huddersfield said they would match it. So what clinches Chapman going to Arsenal, boys? What actually makes him take that step when he's getting offered just as much a club that he's already made successful and he already knows he's built foundations at? Uh, well, as, as we discussed last week, there's not too much around um, you know, it, you know, there was no interviews that he did about this um, other than uh, what he told his friend Ivan Sharp. And it seemed that he wanted to come down to the, the big smoke in London and make his name down here. 
and that and, was and it. I, he, yeah, and <laughs> I, I don't believe I don't believe that, that Huddersfield could have matched the um, the, the uh, wages that Arsenal were paying. Okay, Trevor's decided to on 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 that answer. He thinks there's no more point, and he just left the conversation. He'll be back in a second. <laughs> but um, he, <laughs> what you were saying to us on the last episode as well was that he he targeted um, Arsenal, even though we had a manager in situ at the time. He targeted Arsenal, and he, he, that was his choice, and he made it. I think it was a, a, like a, a, a almost a two year sort of. Um, grooming for the want of a better word because that word sounds wrong these days but a grooming process of trying to get get the job mark do you, do you know more on on that side of things no as andy said there's remarkably little um about why he wanted to come to arsenal what he saw i mean the, the thing with Huddersfield is is that they'd never won anything before he turned up they won the fa cup and then he won league twice then they won the league the, the, for the third time on the trot, and since then they've won nothing. Hmm. So you can um, see what an influence he what you know he was. Why he why he wanted Arsenal? We, we I mean, it's it's a good question, um, but I mean I don't think it's I, I don't think it's, it's, it's it would be possible to work it out because unless there's you know uh, evidence from there, there's nothing in the papers. Was it, was it because of not... Just cutting. I'm sorry I went there, boys. I've got this yeah, yeah, cool. mouse and I touched it and everything went dead. So I'm not going anywhere near <laughs> it anymore. I'm done with it. <laughs> um, what, what, do, do, do you think, Andy, that it might have been his, his links, that he, he might have seen Norris and seen the money that Norris was and the way he was bankrolling stuff uh, from Woolwich uh, over to, to Highbury? And, you know, he's obviously he was a very ambitious man with his trying to merge Fulham and Arsenal together. Do you, do you think it could have been something along that lines? Um, he, he may well have seen that Arsenal were coming out of their financial worries. So when when, Chap, when Norris took over in 1910, we had big financial concerns. He saw that Norris, he must have seen that Norris was willing to move the club to Highbury. And he could see then that, you know, the club was attracting much bigger crowds. Um, not much that you would have seen during the war, but then after the war, Arsenal were one of the most the, big, the most supported teams in the country. Even though we were flirting with relegation, we were still getting the biggest crowds in the country. So perhaps he saw that, and he saw that as um, as a springboard for what he could go down there and, and you know and be able to spend big. And, and the club, like I say, the club was coming out of these financial restrictions in 1925. Uh, Norris had told the previous manager, Leslie Knighton, that, that all of the club's debts had been sorted out, um, you know, from the, the build of Highbury and um, what was accrued during the war. And, you know, I should imagine that they, that they talk about this in, in the football circles. I'm sure that they, you know, they all talk to each other. So perhaps he picked up on that and saw that now that Arsenal didn't have to worry about paying off any more of their debts, they would have uh, a lot of money that they could you know, spend on players and also improving the ground. And and was it an easy transition from, say, uh, Knighton, Leslie Knighton, to Chapman? Or was, I, I, I obviously, I Trevor will remember it because he was only a young boy at the time. But um, uh, <laughs> but was, was it an easy transition from the Knighton uh, uh, management era to the Chapman era then, Andy? Well, if you look at, 
the last season under Knighton, Arsenal finished third from bottom. And luckily for us, it was only two teams that got relegated back then. So Arsenal had just missed out on relegation. Chapman comes in. He's got exactly the same players, except for one signing during post-season, which was Charlie Buckham from Sunderland. Fantastic player. Sort of like the Dennis Bergkamp of his era. Um, and even then, they, at that particular time, Arsenal couldn't afford to pay the full transfer fee. So they paid £2,000 for him up front, which wasn't a particularly big fee back then. And then they paid £100 for every goal that he scored during the season. So Chapman has got exactly the same team that Knighton left him with, that almost got relegated. And by the end of the season, uh, he, he brought in um, uh, Bill Harper as a goalkeeper. And by the end of the season, they finished second behind Chapman's Huddersfield. Mm. So, you know, you can see straight away that he, he knew exactly what he needed to do. There was one other big change that season as well, was the change of the offside law, where previously you had to have we three players rather than two players between the forward and the, the goal. We saw a massive amount of goals being scored. Well, that, so he, that, he, that, was, the, that was the famous WM uh, sort of... Um, formation to talk about and I, myself and Mark were talking about beforehand and, and Mark was a bit dismissive of it but you know we we, we, we do why, why so Mark why, why do you why do you feel that that was not as infamous as, as people talk about and particularly Arsenal talk about and link with uh, Buchan and, and, and um, Chapman because um, what's, his, what's his bloke's name because Buchan makes a claim that, oh, was it? Neil. Bloke called Neil, um, who played inside, um, basically Buchan says he, he, him, and, him, and, him and Chapman discussed it after we got a tonking from Newcastle, 7-0, in about the eighth or ninth game. And he said they, they repositioned Neil to be, because he, he was so slow, but he was a really good passer. So he was the sort of the fulcrum who would, you know, bring the other people in to the play, which is what Bucken eventually got came to. Um, he says they changed Neil, but Neil played that position from from, from the second game of the season. So the, the what I'm saying is, is I don't believe that that it came about other than just I don't believe Bucken's um, uh, explanation of how they actually came to it. Also, lots of other teams played the same thing. They had the same. They had the same. Agreements. It's just that we were better at it. Chapman became synonymous with it because his team started from the third, you know, a couple of years later. Started winning. 1925, yeah. Well, you know, by the 30s, we were winning. We were winning everything. This gives me a, a real good opportunity to, to. I want to draw some comparisons tonight, boys. I want to chuck them in occasionally and uh, see what you think. You see, this gives me the first opportunity to draw a comparison with a with current day, actually, because you, we've spoke about Chapman and and he was brought in, and it, there was an immediate improvement, as we know. But it still took him five years to actually get that improvement to a level where we won things, didn't it? And I honestly yeah. draw a comparison with what Arteta is going through today, and maybe it's more hope than anything else that com that Arteta might be starting that 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 journey in the modern day and be like two or three years into it where he is now. And people people forget that that even in that era, Chapman, the greatest manager. You know, in the world at the time, you know, quite likely, still needed five years to make a winning side. Inst immediate improvements and changes, but to actually win something, it took him five years. 
Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's well, a traditional thing, isn't it? In the Arsenal traditionally since 1996, and you know, obviously weren't in leagues and stuff till '93, and the FA Cup a few years before that. It's it's almost like when you're watching the Euros, you you know which teams are going to win. Obviously, we won last night, but no one's expecting it because normally we get we get beaten by Germany. And it's the same thing if you look at the you know certain games and certain teams, they're always going to lose. And we were in that cycle, and that's why Chapman was such a great manager. Is he 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 took us up from if not losers, but being you know mid table also rands um, who were just about who were there, but we were never we were never at the top and he made us win and that's uh, uh, you know and yeah it took him five years but but before that we'd had decades of of, of nothing yeah decades we'd never of thing, we? boys am i right in thinking no, we'd no we hadn't we'd never want to think no yeah. but, but, but also uh, it, and it took it took chapman those five years to get all of the right players in place Exactly. I was going to say. I was going to say he he, he got in uh, Tom Whittaker first of all as a uh, um, coach and a manager. He brought in Cliff Baston, Eddie Hapgood, uh, and then he chucked more and more money. Again, this we go back to the the Norris links, uh, uh, David Jacks, Alex James, and uh, Arsenal were nicknamed the Bank of England club uh, at one point. Andy, do you want to carry on from there? That's that's not quite true. They weren't the Bank of England club. If you look Wikipedia back, is never Wikipedia is never perfect. <laughs> no, so if, if you if you look back, you see the first reference they're, they're called it's, it's referred to as the Bank of England forward line. So we we had okay. Joe Hume, who cost about uh, three and a half thousand pound, very speedy winger. Uh, we had David Jack as an inside forward, who was a world record signing fee ten thousand eight hundred and ninety pounds. We had Jack Lambert up front, who was quite cheap at about two thousand. Alex James was inside forward, £8,000. And Cliff Bastion was another cheap one at about £2,000. Those five players all cost a fair amount of money, but they were the best forward line in the country for several years. And it was, it was the Bank of England forward line they referred is what they talked about. Now, I, I did some research on Chapman's signings. And, you know, he spent a fair amount of money. And the, the most that he spent in one season was just under £20,000 in 1929-30. And that's when he brought in Cliff Bastin and Alex James. He also brought in David Halliday, who was quite an expensive flop, which was unusual for him. He came, he came in from Sunderland. He was like a record goal scorer as well. So we, we, we spent just under £20,000. And people would you know, look at that, at the, the fees at the time, saying, well, that's a really, an amazing amount of money for a club to spend one season. That season... Chelsea spent £25,000 on just three players and they were in the second division. And no one says, oh, Chelsea were the Bank of England team throwing money around like this, that and the other. And if you... I haven't done a full comparison, but if you look at other clubs, other clubs are spending similar amounts of money. But it was just that forward line that, that people looked at and the fact that they all, they all fitted together perfectly. And Alex James was the one. He was the, he was the man who made it all work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and later on in the 30s, Aston Villa were called the Bank of England team because they, they were splashing money out left, right and centre. Yeah. That's one and a quarter million pound in today's money, that £20,000, by the way, 1925. Yeah. So <laughs> I suppose if you look at today's money in football, one and a quarter million wouldn't get you the, the boot of, I don't know, eager stop enough, I, I suppose, or something like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just... 
it's it, it, it's it's insane, really. Go on, Mark. You were going to say something there? No, I, no. I, I just said Sunderland were known as the Bank of England club as well in the fifties because they spent shed loads of money but didn't win anything either. So, so I, it's, not, it's again, no different than your Chelsea's and Got the WM that that Chapman actually was successful. So they were called the Bank of England forward line or whatever. People made remarks about the fact that they spent a lot of money, but Andy points out they weren't spending any more than anybody else was. Um, it's just that we were winning, you know. And, and also, the school. money the money they were spending was generated by the club itself. It was through fans coming in. Like I say, during the twenties, even though we were struggling with relegation, sometimes we were getting the biggest gates. And then throughout the thirties, well, I'm sure we'll come on to the ground was expanded, and again we were the best supported club in the country. So they're getting masses of money coming in and the players were all on a, a maximum wage of £8 a week. So their outgoings were, were next to nothing. So they could afford to spend ridiculous amounts on um, on, on, on um, transfer fees. Well, uh, before we come on to like the building of the, the West End and, and Highbury and the Marble Halls and so on... Um, Chapman, again, this is one of the questions that Trevor put in, and and Trevor, you can expand a little bit more. So, talk about what the popular sports were. Go on, what a, Chapman wanted to get football more popular, and, and what did you mean by that? Well, do you know, Chapman, as we've already mentioned, Chapman was a was a man with great foresight, and and some of the stuff he brought in off the football field as well in the development of the stadium and some of his thoughts were fantastic. But and we can come on to that shortly. But I read a piece um, that, that football wasn't the most popular sport at the time. And I know for a fact that Greyhound Racing and Speedway in particular used to bring in thousands to their, to their stadiums. And I, I think Chapman was, was, um, was determined to change that. And, and, and did he, did he see, was that a driver? Was that a challenge to him, do you think, boys? Do you know anything about that? That's not one that I've heard before, no. No, I mean, they used to have donkey derbies at Highbury, um, but other than that... Yeah, <laughs> I read it in one history book on the Arsenal that, that, that Speedway, White City Stadium in particular, used to attract humongous crowds for sports other than football, and that Chapman was determined to change that. But if, if, we, if we're not going to dwell on that for long, just before we move on to take it forward, Fergus, we just we must touch on... The end of Norris, because let me set the scene. Chapman's been at Arsenal a couple of years. Norris is still there, and then suddenly Norris gets banned from football. What? What? What's the build up to that? What's the Chapman Norris relationship, and and what? 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 In, in the end, causes Norris to be gone. Who wants to go, Mark? Are you Andy? going, um, Andy? So yeah, there, there, there was there's obviously some sort of tension. I, I think that Mark alluded to it last week that. Chapman wanted a lot more control of, of what he was doing with the club. And you could see that later on. You know, we've seen the minute books of the club from the 1927 onwards. And the directors were, that were left after um, Norris and Hall had gone were more than happy to hand over virtually full control of the club to Norris, the, you know, the operational side of things, they, they, um, you know, as well as financial as well. You know, you look through the, the minute books and it says, you know, that you know, Mr. Chapman can do that. Mr. Chapman can do that. And anything he brings to them, Mr. Chapman can do that. So probably when Norris was there, Norris was very much a, a sort of like a megalomaniac himself. 
So you've got these two characters that are um, both want as much control as possible. And as, as you know, as Mark said, there was this issue with um, with the reserve team bus. Uh, Norris faked uh, uh, forged uh, Chapman's signature. That could well be that Chapman used that as a way of forcing Norris out, and then knowing then that he's did, got a lot more control over the club. Yeah, because did did, no, did sorry, sorry, go on, sorry, Godrev. No, go just on, say, because Mark, did we say it? Norris didn't just leave the club, did he? He was banned from football for life, never seen again, never surfaced again. Is that right, Mark? Well, he did surface again, and he used to turn up at the shareholder meetings, as Andy pointed out, and berate everybody there. Um, but no, he, 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 yeah, I mean, the FA basically just had him to write. I think they had him on seven charges. Um, there, there was no getting out of it. I mean, he was banged to rights on virtually all of them. Well, on all of them. Um, but as Andy pointed out last last week, is that was the point, that was the time when if he had done anything dodgy in 1919, when we were elected back into the third division, that they would have thrown at him as well. Because it was free. It, if you read the papers, it was free round on him. You know, any, anything that went, you know, was was attached to him um, financially, but nothing happened. Nothing happened with the nineteen nineteen stuff. It was all player loans. It was all the other, you know, the um, the, the forging of, of, of the check and, and a few other little charges. You know, a few few small small ones. Um, and basically, they just they just they they, they banned him for life. They banned um, William Hall for life. They banned Jack Humble for life. Um, who else is it? There's one other, wasn't there? Andy? George Peachy was the other director as well. Yeah. So it wasn't just it wasn't just Norris. They basically took the whole strata of the directors out um, and basically said you're not you're not in football anymore. And Chapman came up did, smelling of roses then. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did, 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 did he then become like um, when Hillwood then had? Chapman and Chapman was signing off checks left, right, and centre. And Chapman will do this, and Chapman will do that on the minutes, as you said earlier, Andy. Did did he then almost become I don't, a, a, a director dictator? Did he become the main man? Did he have total control of the club? Pretty much so. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you can see that with the um, with the the improvements on the ground. So he wanted a, he wanted to develop the state the stadium into something that no other club had uh, and which he ended up doing. So, you know, the West Ham was constructed uh, during his time. He put the clock up first. He uh, extended the North Bank terracing, you know, so that he could get more and more fans in. And, the, you know, as they say, you build it and they'll come. And they did. So he had, he built a great team and he started to build uh, a great stadium as well. Unfortunately, he died before, the east stand and the east stand could be built and the north bank could be covered over, but they were all planned, uh, ready, you know, before he died. Yeah, because what people and forget is that the is that when Chapman took over, Ivory was still very much as it had been built in a rush in 1913 when he had the had the, 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 the the basic basic east stand and nothing mm -hmm. else. That was it. So Chapman. Yeah. It's for someone with Chapman's foresight, he's got a blank canvas, really, isn't he? Yep, yep. So, plus, plus, they'd actually bought the grounds. They weren't renting it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the West Stand then, Mark. What, what, when, when, when was that built and, and, and how did that come about? There's not a lot of run down at West Side, was there? No, it wasn't. Look, thir 1932, they knocked it all down, or took a few houses out and built it up. And it's 
you know, it's still there, isn't it? Didn't have to knock some houses down to make the entrance, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was back in 1913 when they first moved in. So that's the, the entrance as you come out of Arsenal Tube Station, almost yeah. opposite you, where you could get into the North Bank and the West Stand. Yeah. Oh, there, were, there used to be two houses there. And Chapman. Oh, not, 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 not the one further up Highbury Hill. No, that was. Uh, I think that was already there. That may well have had to. They may have had to do that when they built the West End. Yeah, I, I, I love. I love that. And I love it's been restored with the uh, refurbishment of uh, the redevelopment of of, of of the the old Highbury Stadium, um, especially because my brother is a Man United fan and he lived in uh, the flat directly opposite. And he used to open his windows first thing in the morning and he used to see Arsenal Football Club right in front of his w window. So for me personally, I just thought it was like that the whole time to him every morning, you know, for me. <laughs> so I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. Listen, um, what about the the marble holes uh, and and like the the, the cannon, uh, the, the changing of the cannon and stuff? What, did, did he have influence over that as well, Mark? The uh, cannon well, obviously came from the armory at Woolwich, and, and that's why I directed that, that to you. So, well, the, 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 they they used they initially used um, a cannon from 1921, 22. So that was that was in Leslie Knighton's era, like a horizontal mm. cannon. Um, obviously, the vertical cannons came from Woolwich, which was part of the Woolwich um, the Woolwich um, council council badge. Um, no, I mean, I, I think I think um, Chapman was, was was more instrumental in the Art Deco design, um, and I think I mean Andy did some work on that, and I think he found um, was it twenty seven different varieties of that Andy or something twenty nine, something it's, like that. Yeah, there, there, there's shed loads. Yeah. I think I think Chapman was 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 responsible for the for the Art Deco, which is personally my favourite. Press that we've ever had. Well, the Art Deco logo, the the yes. AFC with yeah, the, the ball in the centre. Yeah, yeah, the one that you can see above the entrance there. Yeah, my yeah. To be honest, it, it's my favourite logo. I've got it on uh, Gilet. I've got it on, and if I was to choose any logo, I know everyone likes the cannon to the left and so on. I like the cannon to the left, but my favourite one is is that logo there, the the, the nineteen thirty five logo, which. I, di I didn't realize. I, I always thought it was something to do with Chapman, but knowing that it came out in '35 and he died in '34, I I thought, well, no, it was that. I don't know. It, it, it was out before '35. It, it it was like it was as 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 I said, there was a lot of different varieties, and they just sort of worked on different parts of it. it, it I mean, okay. I I think it was it it, it was it's similar to the '27 crest I used in the final, isn't it, Andy? Yeah got shades of it yeah it's similar and then they also an a, a monogram isn't it the yeah the a and the f and the c but but going back to the, the stand you know you can see chapman's influence he was always an innovator and always wanted to improve things so i don't know if you ever did a stadium tour when you were there but you know you go into the dressing rooms by the time they you know i i was doing stadium tours um shortly before I moved to the emirates and you go in there and the dressing rooms seemed quite tight because you had 11 starting players and I think five substitutes by then. So, yeah, there wasn't much room. But back in the day, they would have only had the 11 starting players in there. So it's very spacious. There was uh, underfloor heating for the, for the Arsenal players, not in the uh, change, not in the away team dressing room. 
and then there was big baths and all sorts of uh, facilities that you know that Chapman had obviously thought of and put into the design before his, his early death. Uh, just me and Mark now. Did, did you can still hear me? I'm I'm experimenting a little. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, that's typical of favors, boys, because that's done us no favors at all. That stopped us dead in our tracks. Yeah. Was that, um, was that you again, Trev? No, no, he'll that's blame me. me for that. He'll blame me for that, Mark. Somehow. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely worse off our tracks. Just come it all up then. But, but there, there were also other things that he, he brought in. So floodlighting. He wanted to. Uh, I've got a list, mate. I've got a <laughs> okay. list. Don't move on to that yet. Don't move on to that yet. Just finish off on the stadium because on on on, on the west, he saw so Chapman saw the west stand built, saw it come to look fruition, but he never saw the east stand. He had a big hand in the design of it. He had he, he really obviously knew basically what it was going to look like, but he never actually saw the structure because the poor man, as we'll talk about at the end. Got ill quite quickly and passed away. Fergus, can I move it on, mate? Do you mind? Or you yeah, yeah, yeah. Far away. Far or away. Take the switches again and start confusing us all. You know, it's um. <laughs> so I, I stopped you on floodlights, Andy, because I've got a list. Right, the first thing I want to talk about is the thing that the ground became most famous for was its clock, right? And its clock, the clock at Ivory had several was in several different guises in its early days. Chapman didn't want it to be a clock as as a time-telling clock, he wanted something else. And it also had three different positions in the ground. So, Andy, tell us about that then, mate. Okay, so, yeah, as an, an, an innovation, as Chapman was quite an innovator, he wanted to, he, he, he had a, a clock built, and it was a countdown clock, a 45-minute countdown clock. And it was positioned on the southwest uh, part of the ground, but just about on the west uh, west terrace. So in that corner, there was a big uh, information board where they put up half-time scores or team changes. And then on the on the west side of it, there is where they mounted this clock, which counted down from 45 down to zero. And then at zero, someone uh, sounded a big klaxon. But the, the FA weren't too happy with it because it undermined the referee's authority if he wanted to add on extra time, injury time and that. Um, he would have the crowd on his back because they could see it was coming up to to time. Um, so it only lasted sort of like half a dozen games, and the the FA said no, we're not having that. So uh, it was it was mothballed for a while, and then he got the people who made the clock to reconfigure the uh, the mechanism inside, and he turned it into a, a normal twelve hour clock, and it was repositioned on what we now call the North Bank, that was called the laundry end at the time because there was a massive laundry behind it on the North Terrace. Uh, so you'll see a lot of pictures where people have put them on Twitter and say, oh, Arsenal's clock end. But that was actually on the North Bank. And you can tell that because there's an arrow pointing towards the Arsenal tube station and a big sign saying, you know, underground or whatever. And when they uh, decided to cover up the North Bank with the North Terrace, obviously they couldn't leave it there because no one would be able to see it and they couldn't stick it on top of the on top of the cover of the uh, North Bank. So then they put it on the South Terrace. That was in 1936. And that was where, you know, where, we, where it stayed until uh, the end of Highbury. 
apart from when they put the um the executive boxes up and they took it down for a bit and then stuck it on top of the executive boxes but um and then it gave us the name the clock end there you go and arsenal um obviously was situated on the london underground uh mark another thing that um chapman was influential on was uh the renaming of Gillespie Road Tube Station. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? We're the only we're, we're the only club in London. Are uh, yeah, definitely in London and England with a, a um a station named after them. Well, technically, we got two. Woolwich Arsenal. Highbury well. Islington. No, Woolwich Arsenal. Okay. Yeah. 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 Two. <laughs> Yeah, you, you will you will always hark back to that one. There's not too so many all, trains. So all, really one. No, well, why did he do it? Well, because um, it was Arsenal, wasn't it? It, was, it wasn't Gillespie Road anymore. It, it was Arsenal. You know, we'd, we'd won the league. We'd won the cup. Um, we, we were, you know, building up ahead of steam. Um, why, why not change it to, 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 the, to the club? Um, I mean, admittedly, you know, it, it technically has nothing to do with North London. Um, but then that's the name of the football club, isn't it? So, and the football club was literally, you know, hundred yards away from the from 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 the tube. Absolutely, yeah. I'm just gutted that they never changed it to the Arsenal. Arsenal's yeah, good, unfortunately. Yeah, I love them with the Arsenal. But Chapman also took uh, advantage of the extension of the Piccadilly line. So at the time, mm. um, I'm not sure. I think it might have only. It, it didn't go much further than Wood Green. I can't remember how much further, but they extended it up to Cock Fosters. So because they did the, the the underground, whatever they were called at the time, because they were doing that, they had to reprint every single underground map and reprint every single ticket to account for that. And so uh, what Chapman agreed was that they would rename the station Arsenal and it wouldn't actually cost them anything because the London Underground company had to rename had to reprint everything anyway so you know it's, it's, it, was, it was a timing thing as, as yeah, well as anything was, else it, yeah. yeah so it was a fantastic piece of publicity that cost arsenal nothing yeah absolutely some, but, but again going some, back to the minute books that was something that chapman had proposed to the board himself and they said yep yeah, go ahead with it some of the other things that um, he did was introduce shirt numbers, um, uh, sock colours. We'll do the, the we'll do the shirt colour separately, but uh, shirt numbers and, and and socks with hoops on socks. Uh, who who wants? Andy, do you want to take up that one? Yeah. So so numbers. Um, Arsenal were the very first team in the football league to wear numbers on their backs. They did that on the opening day of the nineteen twenty eight twenty nine season. Uh, Chelsea came second by 15 minutes. So our game kicked off at 3 o'clock and their game kicked off at 3.15. So we were the first team. Uh, unfortunately, again, Love the it. FA... Were, yeah, yeah, unfortunately for us, the FA, again, weren't too happy with it. And that only lasted one game. And, they, you know, Chapman was told, sorry, you're not doing that. Um, but he did continue to use them in friendlies. So you'll see there's a game against Austria in the 30s, which is quite famous mm. with the players with the numbers on their backs. And eventually in 1939, uh, the, the FA fight and the Football League finally introduced numbering of players. Um, with regards to the hoop socks, yep. So um, most clubs had 
plain socks. And um, what he wanted to do was have his players not have to look up and see where their, their uh, teammates were by the colour of their shirts, but just keep their head down, looking at the ball, and be able to look down and along and see their, their teammates wearing, you know, with the hoop socks on. What he wanted to do was have red and white hoops to start off with, which he did, but the problem was they couldn't find a dye that was cut, a red dye that was colour fast. So they started, you know, wearing the socks, washing them, and they ended up running uh, and ended up being pink and red uh, socks. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the only way you could get around that was um, to use a blue dye. So Arsenal had blue and white hoop socks for, for many, many years until the 1960s. My first basketball kit as a kid had blue and white hoop socks. Yeah. I love them. Yeah, they finally managed to get it towards the end of the 60s. And I, I think it might have only been for one season they had the red and white hoop socks. Hmm. Uh, so some of his achievements were in his first season at Highbury as a new manager, he steered the Gunners to an FA Cup quarter final um, and second place in the first division, the highest place that the league had in their history. Um, in 1927, they reached the FA Cup final, losing to Cardiff. And it's the first time that the English FA Cup left England and went to Wales. And uh, we had to wait. Um, and the last the only time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, we had to wait another three years to bring the famous trophy back to our uh, to Highbury. Um, and that was against um, Huddersfield Town, a, ta a team that he managed, and we talked about earlier, to, to great success, a team that he was held in high respect. Uh, of, and, and it was the 1930 um, FA Cup final. And because he was held in such respect, at, uh, uh, and he respected that club so much, and he respected the club that he was representing, which was Arsenal Football Club, he suggested that the teams walk out side by side, Mark. Um, that was then taken up subsequently again by other clubs and in other competition, maybe the FA. I don't, I, I don't know how it, but today, every club, bar COVID, obviously, where they have to come out different entrances and so on. But today, teams still come out side by side. And, uh, uh, and that started with Herbert Chapman at the FA Cup in 1930. Do you want to talk a little bit about on that one? I think they only came out side by side in the big games because I don't recall teams coming out in the 70s and 80s at the same time. It, it was adapted over time, but it, it started with Chapman. Yeah, it, it, was and only then, adapted, it was only really done uh, by, by, by Sky in the Premier League. Um, I, mean, yeah. I recall okay. teams coming out in the 80s and stuff getting awful abuse and pelters and whatnots. Um, and I'm sure uh, away games, we got exactly the same. I think it was only the big game, you know, the FA Cup finals, the League Cup finals, where they used to with walk think, out together. Think, think, thinking about it, with um, older stadiums, it wouldn't be big enough, like if you came out side by side in, in the old no. Highbury Tunnel and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. But I it was still something that... Just just to give you a little bit of an heads up on that, that, that side by side was brought in um, I ain't talking about what I think I know with these two boys on here. I know they might put me right, but I mean, it was it, it was the Arsenal-Huddersfield Cup final that Chapman suggested they come out side by side. And that was actually the starter for coming out side by side in all the cup finals, Ferg. Um, the, the, okay. the coming out side by side at league games, as Mark says, didn't start really up until the Premier League. But you're right about... about, about Chapman started it, but it was carried on in Wembley Cup finals, mate. 
ever since then they came, the teams came. It was unique, wasn't it? The FA yeah. Cup final, two yes. teams came out side by side. Absolutely unique, you know? Yeah, so, sorry, I just thought I'd... I'd uh... No, that's fine, that's fine. And we went on to win the that... that... Um, cup final 1930 we got the FA Cup uh, we won the league the following season with 66 points uh, that was the 30-31 season and in the 32-33 season uh, we won the league again under Chapman and that was the first time that, that season was the first time we wore the famous red and white shirts before that was this burgundy colour um, and it's probably something to do what you Go on. Andy, no, Andy, it, go on. It, 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 it was never burgundy. It was it was a deep red. It was a red called Gar Garibaldi red, named after okay. the uh, the famous Italian um, politician Garibaldi, revolutionary. revolutionary. Sorry, yeah, who who brought sort of like Italy together. The only I time we ever wore that colour, Fergus, was two thousand and six, which was the red current for leaving. Um, Library yeah. is that is that what you're they, yeah. they made that because basically they they doctored a picture which was black and white, which no one actually knew what the colour was because it was black and white. Um, but all all the all of the um, you know all all all, all, all the reports and, and if you look at anything on eBay, you go to any um, sticker or well, not sticker, but you know any any um, card that you get. No one's got no one for Arsenal's got a kit like that. They're all. They're all they're all bright red or slightly. I mean, obviously that because Andy alluded to the, the dying process wasn't the same. Yeah, so you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't categorically say they never ever ever played in a much darker red than they would normally play in because there might have been a disaster with with you know with the washing or whatever. Because obviously they didn't have but, a new kit every game, did they? Um, talk, you, but, talk to us about this uh, the, the 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 red with the white sleeves. Why? That, that was um, a guy called Tom Webster who suggested it. He was a famous cartoonist at the time. And I think he, he, he became semi-famous in the 1990s when um, the, the fantasy football program with David Baddiel and Frank Skinner uh, used to bring him up because he used to do commentaries at the cup finals in the 1930s and come out with these really strange sayings and phrases. So uh, Tom Webster had seen... Uh, suggested it to, I think he suggested it to Chelsea first and their manager wasn't particularly interested in it. And then he suggested it to Chapman mm. and, and Chapman was. And then until recently, we, you know, we understood that, that the first few games that they played with this kit actually wore a white shirt with a red sleeveless pullover over the top. And that's how it's described in the newspapers. Um, and we, we had, a terrible run after wearing it when we first started wearing these shirts, and so we thought, you know, perhaps the players were just too hot wearing them. But now we've seen pictures that actually prove that they were properly made shirts, you know, with you know, proper football shirt with separate sleeves, you know, with the sleeves were actually stitched on and the collar was stitched on as well. Okay, again, we have a question, it's, it's just Chapman wanting to be different, you know, let me make okay. Arsenal stand out. And and also then it makes them stand out on the pitch so they're easy for players to spot like the hoops and the socks, etc. Yep. etc. Mm -hmm. yes. uh, we have a, a question in, in the chat um from Martin Mayhew. Tell us more about the bloody battle of Highbury. Um Mark Trevor, go on. You, you... Yeah, I I have I've got a bit about I've got a I've got a picture on my wall related to that game, Fergus, in that 
the bloody Battle of Ivory didn't actually involve Arsenal Football Club. It did in a way because we Arsenal Football Club broke a record in that game, bloody Battle of Ivory. But it was it was England playing Italy in in the early thirties, and and the, the, if you read up about that game, it, they reckon it was one of the most violent games of football to ever take place. I think England won by three two, and uh, and there was there was no substitutes in them days, and there was players playing with broken noses and twisted on or whatever, you know. But the, the key for me from that game, and I've got a picture on the wall, and I'll send it to you later, Fergus, um, is that Arsenal, for the first and only time ever, Arsenal had seven players in the England starting line on that day, and that's a record that's never been broken before or since. Mark, Andy, I hope you're impressed with my knowledge. <laughs> Very good. Don't, don't forget Tom Whitaker was also the trainer for England that day. Yeah. Um, we had yeah, seven players and the trainer. I knew they'd beat me. I knew they'd have some... <laughs> <laughs> and, and Italy were world champions at the time, and and so Arsenal beat the world champions. Yeah, brilliant. And but the, 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 oh. also they, they they did sort of you know the press did make out the Italians were the dirty ones, but apparently Wilf Coppin went through one of the Italian players, broke his toe in the first minute. So you know, do you know what Mark? I'm glad you said that because the name I was trying to think of this name in my head, in my head, in my head. And it was Wilf Coppin. Wasn't he one of the original hard, hard men of football, boys? Yes, he was indeed. Very yes. much so, yeah. And, and his grandson is on uh, Twitter. Is he really? He yeah. is, yeah. He's yeah. got a few stories to tell. It, it, you know, like, like, you know, all these hard men, off the pitch, he says he was an absolutely lovely bloke. And other yeah. people that have, have spoken about him said, yeah, absolutely top bloke. I, I I know uh, as a, as a friend of mine, one of the hard men of football um, was at Millwall and and very very many other places. Uh, Terry Herlock, and the the man is a a big cuddly bear. He all he the only thing he'll do off the pitch is hug you to death. On the pitch, <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Sadly, on the 6th of January 1934, uh, Herbert Chapman, or Sir Herbert Chapman, died of pneumonia in Hendon, aged 55. His legacy, what would you say uh, in a sentence or two, Mark, was his legacy? And then I'll ask you, Andy, what was his legacy? Mark, go first, please. The, the club kept on winning trophies till 1953, 19 years after he died. Okay. You know. And I would say the same. He set up a system that meant that the club just continued winning. Despite him being, you know, despite him not being there. It's, it's a really interesting point you make, boys. And, and, and I, I, just, I just think about it in that we had, we, had the, we had the temporary manager after Chapman died, didn't we? Sure. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then George Allison comes in for many years. And he wins a couple of trophies, but he wins them in the very early days of his management. After the first four or five years of his management, I think it went a bit quiet on Alisson, didn't it, towards the back end of his career. So is that where he's still feeding off of Chapman's legacy, Andy? Well, it, it, you know, obviously it's taken over a, a team that is used to playing together and they were, they were brilliant players. He'd also brought in Ted Drake, who Chapman had been trying to sign. So he obviously realised that, um, you know, that Drake was a great player, and he was. So that we won the, the league in, in Allison's first season, and then we won the FA Cup 
in his second season. In his third season, I can't remember. I think we, we came close to winning the league again. We might have only been a few points off the top. And then we won the league again. And then I think that's where it started to go wrong. The, the players, he wasn't replacing the players. So 38-39 was the last season before the war. And it was a pretty poor season um, by Arsenal standards of the 1930s. And the players were getting old. And there was also suffering quite a lot of injuries. And he just didn't have the players uh, in the reserves like that they'd had in, in earlier years, in, in, you know, in the mid-30s. And of course, then you had the war, so that that took away uh, six or seven competitive five years, seasons. Five, six years, yeah. 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 And 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 then all the all the best players really did start going. Then so we lost, you know, Eddie Hatgood and then Ted Drake, Cliff Bastin had, had seen his best days uh, gone. George Mal um, and um, all the goalkeepers as well. So Alex Wilson, uh, that they all retired and. So we started the uh, he's, George Allison's last season was the first season after the war, and he, he just didn't have any good. You know, all the all the all the good players were getting on a bit, and he didn't really have any players in reserves. The left left wing, as an example, they played eleven different players on the left wing that season, and we we came close to, you know, we we could have been relegated had had he not bought two players halfway through the season. So he brought in Joe Mercer from Everton, who was considered past it. He was 32 or 33. And Ronnie Rook from Fulham, who'd never played in the top flight. And he was about 32, 33 as well. But those two players transformed the team. And if the season, if, if, if from, from when them two players had, had came into Arsenal, if you extrapolate the, the games that they played, and took it as the whole of the season, Arsenal would have been champions. Whereas because they'd started off so poorly, looked like they were going to get relegated, uh, we ended up mid-table. And that, that was you know, the end for Alisson, really. He'd had enough. Yeah. And listen, uh, people say, and when, I, when we talked on the, 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 the general roundup of um, Arsenal history and we didn't even get much into the new stadium, um, we we touched on Wenger and, and 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 that. How would you say his legacy compares to say with the modern day uh, Chapman, for the want of a better word, but a modern day manager that had such an impact on the club um, uh, as Wenger? Andy, you can go first, and then Mark. Uh, well, like I say, Chapman's legacy went on for you know it carried on for years, so. If you try to compare him to other managers of, that were successful in their time, you could probably say Bill Shankly was similar mm. because he, he brought Liverpool up from the second division and turned them into a successful team and then left a team behind that continued that success. In fact, they, the team that he left behind were probably more successful than Shankly was. And, and unlike, say, Matt Busby, who again took a team that were on its knees in, in the early, late 40s, early 50s and made them, you know, one of the greatest teams ever. And unfortunately, they were, you know, they were decimated by the Munich air crash. But he built that team up mm. again into the 60s. But when mm. he left, he left a, a team that was starting to fall apart and they ended up getting relegated, you know, a few seasons after he left. So even Matt Busby didn't. 
you look at Alex Ferguson, you know, he, 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 his first few seasons at Man United, he was close to getting sacked. If he hadn't won the FA Cup huh? in 1990, yeah. right. he would have been yeah. sacked. He would, yeah. It, but then he built up a fantastic team that, and it, he kept that team going for years. But when he left, that, you know, they've not won the league since he left, have they? So even Alex Ferguson has left behind a team. Or, you know, he's, he's not left anything there that can continue. Whereas Chapman has, and, and Wenger is the same. He's left a team that is not, wasn't, ready, wasn't really challenging. And since then, they haven't as well. And he's not left anything backroom to continue that either. Whereas mm. Chapman, the team that he left behind and had built up, they continued to win things long after he had gone. Mm. Mark, uh, to rephrase it slightly, because I know I know where you, where your your views are, and I, I know you were very much um, uh, unconvinced with Wenger much more earlier than many others. Is there a, a modern day manager that could equate to your Shankleys, uh, your Chapmans, and and the other people that Andy mentioned? No, not really. No, I mean because. So Ferguson was was astonishing. He won thirteen, you know, he won the league thirteen times in twenty five years. Mm. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, you think about that, that, that. That's absolutely, that's absolutely incredible. But as Andy pointed out, since he's gone, you know, they've won a few. Okay, they've won a couple of trophies, which is nice for them. But they're not the same. They're not the power that they once were. You know, there's absolutely no way. Um, I, I can't see any anybody because I mean, if you look at the, the model that Chelsea use, you know, it's if you're not successful, you're out. Um, right, yeah. I mean, Guardiola's only really managed teams who were who have got a lot of money. He's never actually looked at. I mean, I'm assuming this. I mean, I don't know a huge amount about him. Um, but I think he started at Barcelona and went to Bayern Munich and his Man City. So he he's fueled by money. Um, I, I can't see anybody doing what what Chapman first did and then shankly and it, 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 is that down to and and it just it's probably a very quick answer is is that down to modern day and probably the premier league and european football is that down to intolerance and and impatience among fan bases and man uh, owners uh today are is that down to just the quality of the managers uh, uh possibly players right. Social as i say the past a different world it, 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 it's a different, it's a completely different, as you say, it's a completely different environment. You know, you, you never had to have social media. You never had other things when, 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 when the, in the thirties, you know, um, it's, it's, it's difficult because unless you go into the social economical side of things, which, you know, don't you want to football, do you? Um, it, it, it's difficult to, 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 to work out, but I, I don't think any, you'll see mm. that, you know, you'll see the likes of, I mean, to be fair to Guardiola, having said, said that about him, um, he does seem. He does seem to be. He he might he might set something up that that, that carries on, you know. But that, you, you only find that out in ten fifteen years. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Listen, that's true. listen, Trevor. Final word. Fi- final word. Final word, Trevor. I I give up. I was only going to say, Trevor. Final word. You, 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 I've got any questions off the guys that you want to finish up, a bit, and then we'll we'll finish this one up. Go on. Yeah, there's, listen. There's a couple of things. Couple more things I want to ask the guys because because this is this is so interesting talking about this great man. 
I read somewhere that Chapman was proposing or, or was putting out feelers for a European club competition and he got blown away about 20 years before the European Cup was ever invented. Any truth in that story, boys? Andy? No, no <clears throat> nothing that I've read about. He, he, he was certainly interested in playing you know, the big European teams and, and he tried to sign European players, but the uh, employment laws were quite strict back then. So you, I think players needed to have um, a number of years of residency within a country. But no, it, I, I don't think that there was too much. It, it, you know, plane travel had only just started. Arsenal would go and play um, racing club Paris on a regular basis once a year. Yeah. It seemed quite quite an arduous task, especially as um, you know the, the football league wouldn't move fixtures to allow them to go and play these games. So the football league were were always quite uh, a, a sticking point. Even even when the European Ch uh, Cup and the Cup Winners Cup started, they you know, they, they weren't mm. particularly flexible on this sort of mm. thing. They, you know that when Ch Chelsea won the league in fifty four fifty five, and they, would, they should have been the first English team to play in the Football League. And the Football League pressured them not to uh, play in it. And they didn't. You mean in the European Cup? In the European Cup, yeah. Yeah, sorry. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Which was probably a, a good thing for them because they, well, they almost got relegated the season after they won the league. But So the Football League were always... always Arsenal played um, a friendly against uh, one of the Moscow teams in the, in the mid-50s. And it's it was quite an arduous journey then, and and again yeah. the football league refused to uh, to help Arsenal out and move fixtures, so it it, it was never ever going to happen. Yeah. And, and I don't think I don't think Chapman ever, I've not read anything about Chapman uh, proposing that sort of thing. There's there's a lot of things out there that people have have um, uh, said that you know he he proposed this that and the other, but he didn't. Yeah. Fergus, I think Fergus. conceptually he would have agreed. He agreed with it because, as Andy said, you yeah. know we did play European teams, but yeah. practically it was a non-starter because a you had the authorities against you and b you actually had transport against you. You know you couldn't. It wasn't easy to 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 to, to go around um, and 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 go there then. Yeah, you see, Fergus is now, boys. That means he's probably had to go to the loo or something like that. Oh, there he is. You see, Andy, you talking about the power of the Football League has led me into the last question. I hate doing this. I hate taking over from Fergus because Fergus is Fergus is an amazing leader of this show, right? But but this has got I'm so into this. But what what, what Andy just said le leads me nicely into the first, last question, Mark. If you've got any input on this, I don't know. The Football League had loads of control in them days and, and really what they said went, unlike nowadays, whereas it's all television controlled, in my view. So floodlights, floodlights at Ivory. Chapman's put floodlights in at Ivory and they were there for years before they were allowed to use them in competitive matches, weren't they? Weren't they used in a, in a European game because that's the only time he could use them and the, the Football League weren't having none of it, Mark? Am I right in thinking that? Uh, well, I, I don't know, to be honest, but because te I was technically we played... Uh, under floodlights in 1895. So, you know. Right. It was actually mooted um, by a woman writing in one of the letters um, about floodlights in 1891 in the Woolwich, in the Woolwich Gazette. And obviously the, 
you know the reporter took, took the mick a little bit but it, as a concept um it, it was about for ages i mean west we played west ham in 1995 um and they used they, they had a they had a system of, of floodlights um that you know they used to basically whitewash a ball um and then they actually had lights all around the stadium but, but going back to what you was, you was asking there, Trev. Thank it, you, Andy. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> so, so I, I, did, I did find out a little bit about this. So floodlights did start to be, you know, Chapman put them up in the, in the 30s and they did try and play some games, but the, the lights just weren't strong enough and the goalkeepers complained that they couldn't really see the ball. But by the early 50s, most clubs, you know, the bigger clubs had started putting them in and they would play friendlies against the, the you know, big European teams. But, and then it, the, uh, the FA were, were all right with them playing under floodlights in the FA Cup. And the reason for that is it was two teams, one against the, the other. The, the, the Football League said, no, we, we're not going to do it unless everyone does it because then... Teams that had floodlights had an advantage over those that didn't have floodlights because they were used to playing under those lights. So um, I, I think Aston Villa were one of the last teams to get them. So it wasn't until about 1957, 1958 that the Football League allowed fl floodlights to be used in, in their games. So before that, you know, Aston Villa didn't have floodlights. If they played a team that did have floodlights, um, they were at a disadvantage if they did, you know, the game was played later and played under floodlights because they weren't used to it. Uh, final, final question. I'll put this to you uh, and a really brief answer, Andy. I think we've covered it before. Um, Matt, Matthew Bar, uh, Barham in the chat has asked, how much did managers, i.e. Chapman and players get back then in wages? I know you said that um, Chapman was on £1,500, I think, it was about uh, was that, that a week yeah. or a month, a week, uh, that a, and that the it, players were on year, eight yeah. quid a year. Yeah, a year, so, mate. Yeah. So, so fifteen hundred pound a year for Chapman, which is probably the, the by far the highest. I doubt that any other clubs played it paid anywhere near that. Um, so that's about thirty pounds a week, and the players were on a maximum of eight pounds a week. Okay, yeah. I hope and that answers I'm, your I'm, question, uh, Matthew. When, when, to give you an idea, nineteen. So when George Allison took over, I think it was about two and a half grand a year, and the players were still on eight pound a week. Okay, yeah. and Andy, uh, if you didn't catch us earlier on, at uh, twenty thousand pounds in nineteen twenty-five is one one and a quarter million pounds. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, nowhere near what they get paid nowadays. Um, no. uh, but yeah, uh, but there was still a um, a disparate, uh, a, a, a definite separation between the manager was paid more than the players. Where in a lot of uh, cases nowadays in some clubs uh, the players are paid way more than the managers yeah. yes. um, guys if you want to check out uh, Mark and Andy they do loads of stuff make sure your wife doesn't want you to go out in an hour or two because you're not going to leave it uh, the arsenalhistory.com is their website uh, you can see uh, our website as well which is gonsandyellowribbons.com it's um, it, it doesn't have a lot of stuff on there because Trevor's just lazy and he doesn't put much on there um <laughs> Can I ask a question? We're still long and short of it. Go on. Can I ask you two a question? When when did the tradition of um, captain's choice for long or short sleeves turn up? Oh, I wouldn't have a clue. Was... Wouldn't have a clue. Was that not the seventies? Was that not the seventies? Mm. Very. Yes, it was indeed. Well, yes, it was actually. Yeah. Well, we're not Wasn't sure. It all, 
we think it was a late sixties, but it certainly wasn't Chapman because um, they didn't actually have a difference between short and long sleeves. Was, was that not to do with the Irish and the Irish manager at the time? Was it Bertie Me or whatever? Um, no, it's probably me. Yes, me and Frank. McClintock. Could have been Big Frank. Mm. Was, yeah, <clears throat> but that's something which, else which, that Chapman's been credited with. But we didn't have a short sleeve shirt in the thirties. Didn't have short sleeves in the nineteen fifties. Interesting, yeah. Leads us on perfectly. We will have more of these episodes. The new season doesn't start until the 13th of August. There's going to be probably, depending on the availability of the guys, maybe two, three, four more of these where we're going to through. The next episode will be post-Chapman, probably up to 53. And then we'll do a section up to the 70s. And then we'll do up to the, like, uh I don't know, George Graham years. And I really want to do one. And the, the one I want to specialise on before we even get into modern day Premier League football and stuff like that is uh, George Graham, the player and the manager. Uh, and that was one that we, we really, really want to talk about. Guys, thank you very much again for your time. I, I, listen, for me, I'm a sponge. I'm taking all this in. I'm such a newbie uh, in, in comparison to, to many's on, uh, many people on these. And I don't try and profess that I've got a huge amount of knowledge. I'm, I'm a 90s kid, uh, football-wise. Um, but I, I love the club as much as everybody else. And I, I'm loving these. I really am enjoying them. And I hope everybody else is too. Just, Andy, tell people where they can find you and tell them a bit about like, what you do on the website. And then, Mark, over to you. Um, as Fergus put up, it's the it's www.thearsenalhistory.com and also thearsenalcollection.gov uh, thearsenalcollection.org.uk, and you can find me on Twitter. Oh, there we go. That way. <laughs> that way. <laughs> at Guna underscore AK. Mark, very laid back. Where can we find you? There. That yeah. one there. All done. He's been practicing that, hasn't he? You've been practicing that. Yeah. No, I, no, that was, that was fluke. <laughs> <laughs> right. Trevor, Trevor, how good are these? How good are these? It's brilliant now, but you've embarrassed me. I'm off, I'm off to write a blog now. I'm going to think of something to write about. And I'm off to write about. <laughs> well, I, uh, not before you... Not before you ring me and have a 20-minute conversation about, oh, that was great, Frog. What did you make? Yeah, it, it, it was my birthday. It made me weak last week because I've met him a few times before, but I went up to my lad and my missus took me up to London last Friday for my birthday, and I said, well, I'm not going to have go anywhere in London unless I go and have a wander around the Emirates. So I had a wander around and had a quick shoot in the shop, and I bought a, spent a fortune on one of their limited edition items. And just as we left, I was walking out of the shop behind me, good old Charlie George, and he's so <laughs> I, I yelled at him, Oi, Charlie, I hope you're not going to disappear without having a photo with me, mate. And and the lovely man that he is, it wasn't a problem. And he spent five minutes with us, although he was apparently in a rush. He's not working at the Arsenal at the minute because of the COVID and they're not doing the legends to us. But I just thought I'd mention that, you know, we're talking about old Arsenal. Proper Arsenal is Charlie. A ge an absolute gentleman. Yeah. And if, if you're around the Arsenal shop, just do what I do. Just, just if you see him, just go up and thank him. Because he's part of our history and he's a wonderful man. I can remember, you've got me talking now, Fergus. We're going to go on another oh. minute. I can remember when, when Charlie left Arsenal. He, Sorry, boys. He, he went to Derby. <laughs> he went to Derby. And, and I was at the game at Ibury, his first game back with Derby, you know. And I was on the North Bank. And someone, before the game started, someone ran out. Just a young lad ran out of the crowd with a bunch of flowers, you know, before the game started. <laughs> 
and just give them to Charlie George. His first day game back with Derby, and it was, you know, that was how much he was held in respect because that didn't happen in them days, you know. But he was Arsenal. And as Ferguson just said, once again, boys, I've had a fantastic night. I'm always worried when I talk to you two, boys, <laughs> because you always pull me up about something. But I love it. I love it. And uh, thanks again, boys. And we'll, we'll do it again really soon. I don't know what we're going to find to talk about between the end of Chapman and 53, though, because there weren't a lot going on. I don't think we'll all overrun on that one. <laughs> Trev. Good there, was a huge, there, there was a huge war, so you know that, that that there's a lot of stuff to go through just in the war. Actually, really yes. You know what, boys? I read in because we were talking about the, the Arsenal people that served during the war, and I read it. I didn't realise it right in the very back of your book. You've got a lovely tribute mm. to all of those mm. people that 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 were involved in the war, and it'd be lovely to to mention that and talk about that and, and pay our respects to those to those people. Yes, so I'm sure that. Uh, There'll be plenty of time. And especially uh, since we had um, uh, Armed Forces Day just uh, la uh, a few days ago as well, that, that, that would be really good to appreciate them as well. Guys, mm -hmm. thank you very, very much as always. Listen, the people on YouTube, if you're uh, like us, like and click the subscribe button and then you'll know. People on Facebook, uh, Facebook have changed how... Um, I share the thing. So you, you will be directed an awful lot via um, YouTube. I don't know what Facebook have done. Um, and I know that's dropped down some of the numbers that are watching live at the minute. But um, yeah, uh, if you like us, subscribe us, uh, subscribe to us, download us. Uh, we're on Spotify. We're on uh, YouTube. Uh, listen, we are, as you can see, genuinely four Arsenal fans just sitting there. We're not after plaudits. We don't want to be autographed or accosted anywhere. We, we, we are just truly, like you, gooners through and through. As our motto says, we're four Arsenal fans by Arsenal fans. Thanks very much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. You've been listening to Guns and Yellow Ribbons, an Arsenal podcast by Arsenal fans for Arsenal fans. Follow us on Facebook at Guns and Yellow Ribbons and Twitter at Guns and Ribbons. And remember to rate and review us too.